All right. Welcome back to More Than a Diabetic. Thank you guys so much for tuning into the first two episodes. It's been really cool to see the accounts who are tagging us and sharing uh, who I've never seen before. So I think that really is proving the reason that we needed to do something like this, uh, where when you include people, you get their support and they come up and they give you good feedback and they feel represented, which is a great opportunity for us to tee up episode three here with four guests. Uh, I guess you count as a guest because you, yes. this is an episode that you're actually featured in. I'm a panelist in this one, guys. I'm important. Just kidding. We asked your so opinion. Sweet. Everyone's so sweet. I am really excited to see what you guys think about this episode. Uh, I love Cameron and Kiana and Mike and just all of us together in a room talking. I am a sucker, a sucker for quotes. Uh, I love me. I am the most basic quote box. Uh, you know, I see a quote. I'm like, yes, I feel that right here. And so Cameron has a lot of really great quotes, uh, some really notable uh, black leaders that he quotes throughout the show, which I'd highly encourage people to read more of uh, from those folks. So uh, Cameron's great. Mike also great. I think um, Mike and I, we vibe a hundred percent. I was in his uh, birthday video recently. I don't know where he's at. Where you at Mike? Holler at me. Um, and uh, we also have Kiana Drew, Kiki, one of my favorite people. And she tells us a beautiful story about being included. And I think that really shows the human element when you invite somebody who is different than you into a situation. And she just goes on to say what a profound impact it's had on her life and especially getting involved in the diabetes community. And I think that's a big learning that we can take away from this. And again, it's just a proof point that these types of conversations need to happen more often and platforms like this one need to be taken over uh, and need to be dedicated to people who look different than people who look like me. So also that there's conversations to be had that maybe people don't think about all the time. I think at the beginning of the episode, Cameron and I talk a little bit about the differences in having diabetes, but also being a person of color first. So it's a really interesting conversation to maybe listen to and just put yourself into somebody else's shoes for a moment. So I think that when you say the human impact that can be like on so many levels throughout this whole episode, it's, it's a good one. Definitely is. And uh, we also you talk about black excellence. We talk about what people like me in positions of leadership in the diabetes community really need to know about what it's like to be black with diabetes. Uh, we also talk about Chef Tommy Fields, who tragically passed away earlier this year from complications with COVID-19, which is another area where black and brown communities are disproportionately affected. So uh, we're still in the middle of that pandemic. We were talking about that before we started recording. Uh, very much uh, COVID is, is still raging in the US and, and most of the world. So be safe, mask up, and um, enjoy episode three where Eritrea is a guest. Uh, Kiana is a little bit late to this episode. She joins about an hour uh, into the interview, uh, but she comes in swinging big time. So uh, be sure to tune in. And thank you again for listening to the series and for all of your support. Keep tuning in. We have one more episode to go after this episode four uh, coming next week. So uh, thank you guys for all the support and enjoy this episode. Then with that, we will get started. Welcome back to another episode of More Than a Diabetic, a series from Diabetics Doing Things. I'm super excited to have this discussion with you guys today. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you for allowing us to be on this platform. It'd be fun. Very excited. Uh, hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Michael, um, Mike Lowry. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. My name is Michael Roberson. Um, I am a type 1 diabetic, and I've had type 1 diabetes for about 21 years. 
my Instagram handle is Glucose Gang Mike, and that is the clan following um, the community that um, I'm trying to build, like so many others. Hey everyone, I am Cameron Hall. Uh, I have been living with type 1 diabetes for 21 years, so actually 22 years in January. Uh, and my Instagram handle is at young underscore gifted and black. Uh, and there you'll see bits of my story as a T1D and also lots of tasty food recipes if you love good good food, so. Uh, my name is Eritrean Musakan. I am a content creator here at Diabetics Doing Things. My Instagram handle is at Eritrea, E-R-I-T-R-E-A-A-A. Um, and I am a type 1 diabetic. I've had diabetes since 2001. So in February, it'll be 19 years. Yes. 19 years with the diabetes, fam. Hi, my name is Kiana Drew. I go by at Kiki Drew on Instagram. And I've had type 1 diabetes for 20 years. Killing it. Man, it's rare that I get to be on a broadcast where I have the least amount of diabetes uh, in the room. But man, this is like what a what a gift for me today. I get to be the student and learn from uh, learn from those who have gone before me. I'm so excited that you guys have joined us. But our topic today is starting with Black Lives Matter and as how it relates to the diabetes community. So I want to talk about that sort of at large and have that uh, at large discussion is what role can the diabetes community and the people within it play in the Black Lives Matter movement globally, online, and, and wherever in between? Anybody. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, Eritrea, I think uh, let's kick, let's kick it off with you because I know that this is yeah. very close to your heart and, um, and obviously, uh, you know, I think that using this platform to talk about the struggles that black people living with diabetes face in addition to just living with diabetes uh, is, is obviously very important to you and very important to us. Uh, yeah, so I, when we thought about the series specifically, like this was the conversation that I wanted to hold. Um, I think that as people, you know, we are, outside of just being diabetic, we are just black people. So at large, we are targeted more by police, um, and with the murder that happened in Dallas of a Tatiana Jefferson specifically, she was a type one diabetic that I don't think is talked about enough or even showcased in our, in our community. Like as diabetics, I didn't see the outpouring of support for this young lady who was, had diabetes. Um, she was a pre-med student. She wanted to work on the cure for diabetes. Like this was a black woman who was 28 years old. And maybe that's why it's so close to my heart because I'm 28 years old. I work in the diabetes community. She seemed like she really wanted to make change happen. And then just to see the diabetes community be majorly silent on her behalf has hurt me deeply. So I wanted to bring the conversation to the a forefront where people who maybe didn't know or do know could really dig into that and we could break it down more because it's like, why is it that black women are always not cared about, not appreciated and just forgotten about even though we literally carry everything on our shoulders. So I think specifically for her, it's important that we have this conversation. Um, and so I, I think that with us being targeted by police officers, we have to break that down, down more, especially when as diabetics, we can be in emergency situations where paramedics need to be called, where police officers need to be called. Um, and how, you know, and as black men, 
I reach out to you guys and I'm like, how, how does that make you feel, you know, even just driving down the road? I think Black Lives Matter and the and diabetes have, have a lot of work to do, to be honest, because I think one of the things that gets lost a lot in the diabetes community, particularly in the di diabetes online community, is that those of us who are people of color are not just diabetics. We are people of color who are diabetics. I am a black male diabetic. Um, and so that drives every decision that I make as it relates to my treatment of my disease. Um, I have one of those uh, insulin pump holsters uh, that are designed to be like tactical holsters. I never wear it. If I do, it's, it's normally around my house. Um, I, I'm not taking that out because I'm aware that even in my, my little plastic thin insulin pump case, if I'm reaching for my insulin pump, uh, then that can be mistaken as a gun or as a weapon. Uh, and that a lot of times gets lost, those day-to-day -day decisions that we have to make. I think I talked recently about um, even just being in the store, if my blood sugar happens to drop, um, which happens frequently, I go to, if I go to the grocery store, if I'm making an errands run, um, it's inevitable that my blood sugar will drop even if I put my insulin pump in the uh, exercise mode, I'm moving constantly, walking constantly. Um, if I reach into my pocket and I take out a snack to treat my blood glucose, will I be thought of as stealing something? If in the times where I've been pulled over by the police, which is always horrifying to me, um, if my insulin pump beeps and I need to reach it, well, what will, what will happen? And that's a part of even just my, my pure black experience, right? When you're black, you have I think um, Procter & Gamble did the whole The Talk uh, series, right? Um, and that's a real conversation. You and, you, you and you're a Black person, your parents at some point inevitably have the talk with you. You keep your hands on the wheels at 10 and 2. You turn the radio all the way down. If you move your hands, say, I am going to move my right hand to get my, my license, which is in my right pocket. Uh, I'm reaching with it now and I'm pulling that out. Well, how do you explain that if an insulin pump uh, uh, or a CGM blares out of nowhere uh, and you're in a position where uh, you've been pulled over or stopped by a police officer. And so those things don't get reckoned with in the diabetes online community. And, and I think there's even a, a broader topic to this too, that as Black Lives Matter has evolved to be Black women matter, Black mental health matters, Black happiness matters, Black health matters, where are we in that, that story in the diabetes community. And the fact that we're just now hearing in this year um, that there are more faces that look like us, uh, thanks to Mike and uh, the Glucose Gang Live, we saw uh, earlier JDRF highlight uh, three African-American women. And we're starting to finally see that there are more people that look like us. Um, and that didn't happen really until we were in this space where the digital space became more prevalent. Um, and so I just, I think that there's a lot of reckoning that we need to do in the diabetes community, but definitely in the diabetes online community. And I, I think as a, a white person who lives with diabetes, I think that there's just an ignorance that goes along with what you're talking about, like your experience in a grocery store or your experience in, uh, when a, a police officer pulls you over where, in my mind, as a white person with diabetes, the first thing he says is, oh, I can just explain my way out of this to the officer and say, hey, officer, I have, this, my insulin pump is going off. I need to reach for it. And, and he would be like, 
sure, fine. But because I'm missing that first layer, like you said, of blackness, right? So you're, you are first a black man, second, a person with diabetes in that interaction. I even remember an instance where <clears throat> uh, this was back when I was recently diagnosed before insulin pens kind of became a thing. And back when I was diagnosed, syringes were still the thing. And I remember my mom having a conversation with me and just telling me, you know, make sure that you have, um, when I was traveling, at least she would say, you know, make sure that you have some note from the doctor, you know what I mean? To kind of highlight that you are a type one diabetic. And I'm thinking as a kid, then I'm thinking, why do they need to know that? I'm a diabetic. I know that, you know, I have my glucose tabs. I have my, my blood glucose meter, you know, I, everything says I'm a type one diabetic. I have my, um, my emergency glucagon, everything says I'm a type one diabetic. And then she explained to me that, like Rob said, uh, and like Cameron said, you're a black man first. So if they see a bunch of syringes in your bag as a black man, their initial thought is not this kid is probably a type one diabetic. They might be this kid is a drug addict. This kid might be transferring drugs for his parents. That's just a prime example. You know, it is always this conversation is, um, as stated before, you're black first and then a diabetic second. So. And not even just you're black, but like the stigma that comes with it. So like, I think that a lot of people who are, a lot of, a lot of arguments that I've heard that are, you know, I didn't grow up privileged, even though the person is white. They're like, I grew up struggling. My parents were like real earth to the, uh, so boots to the earth kind of folks, blah, blah, blah. They don't understand that they're born with this inherent right to be whatever they want to be. Like, if you are a white person in this country and in a lot of places, you have a blank slate to create this image of yourself, whatever that may be. If you get on the internet and you want to be type very, very, very happy, you can do that. But if you are one of us, like you still are type black, no matter what you are first, right? So, so many people think that the privilege comes because of money or status or class. And that's not really it. It's the ability to just be whoever you want to be without any inherent nefarious thought associated to your identity because of a structure that you didn't create right because if people have bad opinions about black people and you know this is relating to our topic today slavery i mean i'm sorry um the police started in 1865 something i was talking about earlier with rob and bad opinions started happening a lot of african-american people more than already were created that we were crime oriented because so many laws were created that were illegal like it was illegal to literally be black because you didn't have a job because you just were a slave. You didn't have um, resources, land. So all of those things became illegal and then it became black people are criminals. But you see what I'm saying? Like it, it was all structurally created. So again, that privilege just comes from inherent things that you're born with when you're born. So I don't really know actually where I was going now. <laughs> so you have to edit out. No, but I think, but <laughs> okay. I think that is excellent too because the, the remnants of what you were just saying still trickles down in today we see it in healthcare where we see that um, more people of color are more likely to be misdiagnosed uh, than diagnosed properly that's criminal we see it in the treatment that we receive i was just watching another diabetes webinar maybe two sundays ago uh, where a young lady was saying she didn't even know that pumps were a, a part of insulin insulin therapy 
uh, living in the United States, but the area that she lived in did not grant her access to the type of healthcare that would mention uh, insulin pumps and insulin pens. She, so she only knew injections, didn't know Dexcoms and CGMs until just recently. Um, we see the, the trickle down of that whole system of criminalized blackness trickle down into what we see in the, di in the diabetes community today and, and how we navigate lives as black diabetics, diabetics of color uh, in this world. And it also trickles into who we see. Like um, Eritrea was saying, um, you can be whoever you want to be. Let's look at the numbers though. Um, people of color make up the majority of the people globally. Um, white people make up the minority of people globally. So the fact that still as a young black diabetic, I didn't see my first uh, black type one diabetic until I was near adulthood um, says something when there are tons of black diabetics in Africa, when there are tons of brown diabetics in India and in China, where there are tons of black uh, in, or indigenous diabetics. There are tons of um, Australian indigenous diabetics. And that drives the whole narrative. You, you can be who you want to be and that tells, and that, then that narrates the story of who you are, um, whereas, uh, we, we don't get that, that ability. Uh, we may, even though we're the majority of, of diabetics type one, type two, and other, um, we still are, are unheard and unseen. Let's talk about that moment where you saw for the first time, another type one, another person with type one diabetes who looked like you. Do you remember? I mean, I, I imagine you remember exactly the moment that it happened, right? Actually, I remember more clearly the first time I met a first uh, black diabetic who was my age in general. And she was, uh, I was maybe 10 years old, uh, but she was a type two diabetic. She was a juvenile type two diabetic. And so I remember that instance, I was at Camp Seal Harris in Alabama, um, a diabetes camp. Um, and that was the first time I ever saw a, a another black diabetic. Um, I didn't, I don't recall seeing my um, first black diabetic type one diabetic until I think I was in college, maybe sophomore or junior year in college. So, I mean, still like I almost your entire life, I mean, obviously your entire life up to that point, but a good chunk of your life in general, before you even encountered another person that looked like you with, with the same disease that you have, even though, like you said, I mean, diabetes from what I can gather from research, basically the same percentages apply across every population. Uh, whether you're in India, whether you're in the U.S., the demographics basically break out the way the population is broken out, um, which would say that there's a lot higher percentage of people, Black people in this country with type 1 diabetes than we see in media, in represent, represented on panels. For, you know, forget about the diabetes online community, like tip of the, the panels and the organizations, but just in general, the imagery and the narrative of Black people with diabetes, people of color with diabetes is missing. Right. Um, I think it's interesting that you said organizations because, and I, I'm going to tie this into the story of the first time I met a Black girl with diabetes, um, was actually also at a diabetes camp. So I met, and I'm going to shout her out because I bet she listens, Destiny Bailey at Camp Sweeney. I was nine years old and we were going for summer. And summer sessions at Sweeney are long, they're like three weeks. But I remember that the reason I got to know her was because when my dad parked our car, he saw them. They were the only black people there. 
And my African dad ran, almost ran over to these people like, hello, hi, my daughter, she needs to be, my daughter needs to be friends with your daughter. Come on, please, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so then every summer after that, my parents kept letting me go because her parents would let her go. So my dad was like, oh, there's other black people who go there. There was four of us at that camp. And things like that bother me because diabetes camps are a resource. So why don't black people, as many black people get to go? And for my opinion, any, every, every diabetes camp I see is full of, it's a chocolate chip cookie. There's like one of us swimming in there, but not a whole lot. And that always has bothered me. I've wondered about that for a long time. That's also been my experience as well. Um, as a kid, I went to a diabetes camp in Michigan and I feel like I was probably the only black kid at the camp. You know what I mean? So that does speak volumes. Um, and even my mom, um, I keep referencing her, but she remembers going to, when I was first diagnosed, going to these diabetes meetup groups. You know what I mean? As a parent of a juvenile type one diabetic, just to try to find people for me to be friends with that had the disease. There was no black parents or, 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 or you know, mothers in that group. Um, and I think that, that that just speaks volumes, you know what I mean, to um, the fact that we need to, uh, you know, I think with people of color, we have to meet them where they are. You know what I mean? It's not so much just about raising awareness, but we also have to infiltrate and go to these communities that they are at and meet them where they are and raise awareness that way. You know what I mean? Because so far it hasn't worked as far as reaching out and getting to know other people of color that are diabetic. Eritrea and I talk about it a lot here locally in Dallas, like the ways to get access to and meet black people with diabetes, people of color with diabetes here where they are um, and, you know, finding where those people are. And I think it takes a willingness uh, and I'm going to use all the stories you all shared just now. I mean, they mirror my experience when I go and speak at diabetes camps. I didn't go to diabetes camps when I was a kid because I was diagnosed late and I was a snotty teenager and didn't want to go. Um, I was a hater. I was hooping and I was like three weeks off for what am I going to do with my basketball? Anyway, um, I go and I see one or two black kids every time. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's a hundred person camp, a 300 person camp or a 400 person conference. Um, I shared on another episode of, of more than a diabetic that I was giving a keynote speech at a, a chapter, a JDRF chapter. Uh, and I have a slide about representation, uh, with Ariel Lawrence on it. Um, talking about her, I basically plug profiles of people that I've interviewed and why I like them. And I was looking around the room and I was like, Whoa, there's no black people here. None. It was all, there were no Hispanic people there. And like, when I tell you like the vibe in the room was uh, like, nobody was picking it up. Uh, and, and I got nervous. It was like the only time in the entire presentation I got nervous because right there is evidence of the problem. But um, I want to flip that on its head because as a white person, and especially I, I, you know, live in corporate America during normal times, I'm in businesses, I go into banks, I walk into buildings that I've never been into been in before. And I always see people who look like me and rarely am I on the opposite end of that, where I'm in a room with all other people who don't look like me? And I think that what's really important about this conversation, especially from the diabetes perspective, is that that experience, what you guys have described, almost every person of color, black person with diabetes can, can echo 
or say, hey, I went to a local chapter meeting. I went to a support group. I went to a camp and there were far more people who looked different than me than looked like me. For me, for a white person, like that never, white people don't live life like that. Like we don't, in America at least, like we pretty much for the most part, I would say a majority of us do not walk into places on a regular basis where we are the minority. Yeah, because you guys created the spaces. So like even like the diabetes camps that we go to, they're what created by what? American Diabetes Association, the JDRS. I don't know if Beyond Type 1 has one or not. There is like one grown-up type 1 diabetes adult camp. That camp costs like $900. Like it's about access. And when white people create these spaces, they're not meant for us. Like you, they, I don't know how to say this, but they genuinely don't want us in those spaces. They just need us for the photo op. Like, so I'm gonna tell, and I've told you this story, Rob, and I'm gonna tell it to Cameron and Mike. These places almost kind of take your diabetes, like your blackness away from your diabetes. At places like Camp Sweeney, you know, I was encouraged to wear a t-shirt that said not black on it. They, they do, yeah, they do these things where to me, it's like internalized hatred of black people. And maybe it's not intentional, but it's lack of education. It's lack of black people on staff. It's lack of bringing in more resources. So when it's systemic and the white people own the system and they only put in random black kids for the photo op, then they know it's a problem. They just don't care. I was going to say, I think as black people um, throughout history, that's, that's, you know, been our plight, right? You know what I mean? They don't want us in these spaces. And so what we end up doing is we create our own spaces. You know what I mean? If you've ever sat and listened to a conversation about lack of diversity or um, inequalities, you know that a lot of the times the conversation is, well, um, you know, I want to get to, I want to join the table. I want to be sitting there with these folks. And the conversation is switching now to, well, instead of joining this table, why don't we make our own table? And I think in the at least in the online diabetes community, <clears throat> diabetic community, I do see that. I do see us putting our own spaces together. You know what I mean? I do see us bigging each other up. I do see that I'm, I'm living proof of that. I see that. Um, and so I think the response to systemic, uh, you know, uh, indirect or direct racism within this community is that we, we build our own spaces. And it, it's just, um, I don't know if that's the most efficient way to go about it. Um, I don't know if that's the, the 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 right way to go about it, but that is um, that's the historical way that we've kind of went, and I do see that happening um, in the online diabetes community. And it does happen. It it happens in the diabetes online community and in the community at large. Um, it's not always sustainable, um, but it happens. Like and and even if it is sustainable, um, then we see issues where. Uh, just mentioning uh, black, uh, that the fact that we are black and dealing with that as a um, diabetic becomes a blow up for the internet. <laughs> like um, the, the times where I mention things like my blackness and diabetes or how my diabetes is, is uh, in the midst of dealing with the stress of uh, George Floyd's and Breonna Taylor's and Tatiana Jefferson's and Sandra Bland's and how that affects my blood sugars and the, the comments that I get when we start to build our own spaces there. And then some, even in looking at just historical context at, at um, Black America in, in general, when we are successful, it's never for long because we can look at Tulsa for instances of this. Uh, the Black Wall Street, I was 
uh, there uh, when last October. Um, and you can you can still go see some of the remnants of, of the town that was there. Um, so it's not always sustainable, but we do it because we know that we need a space. And for those camps um, that we've been mentioning, how do most of us even learn about those camps? It's often by word of mouth. Well, <laughs> it's less likely that a white parent is going to tell my black parent about a camp um, for white kids, right? And why? Well, it goes back to that that system that issue of systemic racism. I am going to be the the criminal at the camp. Will I steal something from their kids? <laughs> Will I hurt someone? Um, and so the instances where those of us who even do hear about the camps, uh, uh, I think there were only two of two or maybe three of us at the camp that I went to. Um, I just so happened to I didn't even hear about it from my first endocrinologist uh, or my second endocrinologist. I had a good diabetes educator who mentioned it to us as an option. Um, and so my parents spend a lot of time talking to um, other uh, diabetic parents in those waiting rooms. No one ever mentioned the camp. It wasn't until we had a, uh, I would call that particular uh, diabetes educator an ally. Um, I don't know if I would go so full. I, I, I categorize ally from accomplice. Ally means that you just, you see that there's an issue and it needs to be righted. Accomplice means you're willing to actually get your hands dirty and get in the fight uh, to me. Uh, I, would I would say that she was probably an ally. Um, and she mentioned that. Uh, and I, I think in this space, um, we, need, we see that we need to be brought forward. We see that the spaces weren't made for us. They, they literally, were not made for us. And we are used to being the, the oddball out in, in the situations, right? Even in my professional career, and I, I hesitate to mention this, but I am probably one, right now, I think I'm one of three black people of a division across four um, universities in the school system uh, and uh, a, a system administration uh, in Texas. And so we are a division across all, all four of those universities of about maybe 200, 300 people. I am one of three, two or three, right? Um, and we never see each other because we all work at different institutions. They work at one university, the other one works at another university. I work at the administration. And so uh, that, that speaks to even, even in our workplaces. So we're very used to being in situations where we are, we are the, the oddball, the, the literal black sheep. And it puts us in this situation where uh, in both the diabetes community and in our personal lives, I think W.E.B. Du Bois pinned it best when he says we operate in this double consciousness. We constantly are, and, and quite frankly, I would say that black women are operating in a triple or quadruple consciousness where we're constantly thinking about both ourself as the black person ourself as the diabetic, uh, ourself as the, um, just the black individual. Uh, and these things are always being juggled in ourselves. And so when we think about going back to the original question, Black Lives Matter and the diabetes community, I think the first thing that we really need to do uh, is to acknowledge that there are black diabetics who have a black diabetic experience. Um, who have to rec reconcile the facts that I am black first, I am diabetic second, and these things cannot not coexist, right? Um, the decisions that I make as a black man will affect 
the decisions that I have to make as a diabetic to treat myself. And those things can't be divided. They have to continually be uh, a part of the topic. And right now the diabetes community is starting to shy and, and gear towards online community, it's starting to gear towards a little bit more of accepting that and a little bit more of accepting that, but this is 2020. Um, well, it's almost 2021 uh, and that needs to be key. We need to forge that conversation, accept that conversation and then move from there. I think there's so much, I mean, we could just focus on that for the rest of this conversation that we have, because I think there's so much intersectionality of being a person with diabetes in, and also, you know, diabetes and, and being a black person in this country, like you said, they cannot be separated. They are, they are for you guys, they are your life. And I think earlier you mentioned Cameron, uh, black wall street, which I think is a great example of the erasure of black history and black excellence in this country that, that was not in my high school textbook. Um, and even if it was, would my teacher have focused on it for, uh, as a part of American history? I think there's been a lot of criticism, rightfully so this year, especially of the erasure of, of the black experience from modern American literature. And even, uh, recently like, um, sensitivity trainings being banned at a federal level by the sitting president. And so, you know, I, th I think what's what's really interesting is to see the fallout of that uh, and see it spill over into other parts of people's lives. And I think what you you sent an email response when we asked you to be part of this, um, and one of the one of the reasons that I uh, responded back why I think you're perfect for this type of forum is your Instagram handle. I know has got to make people uncomfortable, uh, and all it says is young, gifted, and black. Do you? What is it about black excellence that makes people so uncomfortable? I think as it relates to black excellence and why it can be viewed as such a, a threat is because they, one, of, one of the core things about racism, um, if you ever get a chance to read any of the materials by Dr. Wilson Fallon, um, he uh, is a professor at my alma mater, the University of Montevallo, uh, history of history, and then he's also a professor and I think a, a president of a divinity college as well. Um, but he states this one thing, and I think he stated it consistently in some of his materials, is you cannot disenfranchise Black people without also disenfranchising poor white people. And so if you look at that core concept, that means that we have so much common ground on the fact that we're Black and the fact that you're poor, no matter what level of wealth I have as a Black person, I still have common ground with a poor white person, right? And so once a Black person starts to do better, then that they, they're leaving behind that poor white person, right? And so when you get into that territory, of course it's viewed as a threat. I am now doing better than someone who has been taught that they should be better than me. Uh, and that creates this, 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 this trigger to them to where they want to, in the case of Tulsa, burn Tulsa to, literally burn Tulsa to the ground. That creates this case where they want to hinder the progress of us in our careers. It creates this case where we don't get the best medical supplies. It creates this, this case where we earn uh, 50% of what our white counterparts, where if you're a white woman, uh, 75, I mean, a black woman, 75% 
of what your white male counterparts are earning. You're not earning nearly as much uh, on the dollar. And so it creates this, this trickle down effect. And that's one of the things that racism has done so well at masking to particularly the, the white community, white, white people is that if, if we ever sat down and thought, thought about it, um, you cannot disenfranchise black people without also disenfranchising poor white people and poor people in general. Uh, that is why you see the Reverend Barber in North Carolina, uh, the, the, the president of the North Carolina poverty movement trying to unite white communities right now. He stepped down from his role as the president of the North Carolina NAACP uh, to take on the, the role in the North Carolina poverty movement uh, to, to really highlight that you can't break those two apart. Um, and and that, that's a key part to this argument. And that it's really what makes black excellence so, so, so much of a threat. Even this weekend, Rob, you mentioned my, my IG handle. I, I sent a request to another diabetic in the diabetic community to, to follow their page. He felt the need to respond to me and say, why do you have the and black in my name? Which when I, when I uh, posted the, the response, like there were black people who were messaging me, like how does he not even know that that's a song? My, my IG handle is a very popular song known as young, gifted and to be young, gifted and black. Um, and it, my favorite iteration of it is by Nina Simone. She actually did a version of it on Sesame Street. And the, the whole point of the song is to, uh, was to get kids to understand, young people to understand that the color of our skin is not a plight, right? It's actually where it's, the, the song says to be young, gifted and black is where it's at. Uh, meaning that we are special, um, that we are just as good as the rest, uh, in some cases better, right? And so he felt the need to ask that. Well, of course, my response is going to be first and foremost, the truth. Uh, I came up with the name of my, my IG handle off of my favorite song. I was When I got on IG, I was very much into Nina Simone at the time. But then the second part of that is, of course, because I am Black, right? And so when he feels the need to ask that question, uh, then it that was a, another point where it was a challenge to him. Why does my Blackness matter? And so we have to think about that constantly. Uh, my blackness matters in ways that it should not be. And it's something that you, you can't stop thinking about. Um, I 100%, I remember you posting that message. I messaged you myself and I was just like, Cameron, my guy, like, <laughs> but you know, to add on to what Michael and Cam said, I think that the power of the black intellect is terrifying to white people because and, you know, I don't mince my words when it comes to white people. They rebel in the mediocrity. They love it. So when they're at the top of their game without us, of course, they would want to oppress us to keep us out. You know, Asada Shakur, is there's a reason she's a refugee in Cuba. There's a few other Black Panther refugees in Cuba. Angela Davis, like, these are people that the law came for. And especially Angela Davis threw the book at these folks. Like, y'all have no idea what you're actually talking about. So I think that Black excellence is intimidating to white people because, just to everyone in general, they really try to keep us down. Like they really, really tried it. And no matter what we overcome and still we rise each and every time. We're here right now. So it's, I, I would be scared if I was them. That's all. Like I, they have, you know, there's a reason because you know, we're powerful. We really are. Especially when we come together and we put things together. The, the things that I've seen so many black organizations do this year 
the NBA shut down. Like, come on. So they, they have a right to be afraid of us because we do amazing and powerful, beautiful things. And I think that that is one of our superpowers as Black people as well is our resilience, right? How do you, how is, do we as a people overcome systemic racism? How do we overcome redlining? How do we overcome not being able to be taught how to read, but somehow we still learn how to read? How do we overcome slavery? How in the hell are these people doing these? How do you have someone go to Harvard, you know, get into Harvard University? You know what I mean? How how is it? How is the 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 most world famous basketball player <clears throat> a black man? You know what I mean? How it's 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 scary to them because you can't. People fear what they don't understand. It's not. You know what I mean? You I, you, it, you you can't wrap your mind. Some people can't wrap their mind around the fact that we are the most resilient people in the world and we've overcame. We've been to hell and came back, you know what I mean, with 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 friends. <laughs> so I, I think that's that's just another part of it is is our resilience is uh, as people of color, you know what I mean? And not just black people, you know, Indians, uh, Native Americans, Asians. These this is our strength is to overcome. You know what I mean? If you're 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 born in a different country and you move to America, you know, you come with nothing. But and you still have to make that work. And a lot of times immigrants definitely, most of the immigrants do. And not just, uh, not even in the, the, the typical way of America, which, you know what I mean, has been go to school, get a, um, you know, go to, go, go to high school, go to university, get a good job. These immigrants will move and start businesses their parents will succeed and then they'll tell their kids now you go to school and make it the that way it, it speaks there's it the re resilience is something that if you don't have it you don't have it but if you do you know that it's it, it is like a superpower and i think most black all black people and all people of color have that power we and I, I think that's something yeah. that i i bought into that, that I bought into as a white person, and, and this is sort of my white blindness, is that America is this land of opportunity. You know, it's on the Statue of Liberty. Uh, it's engraved on the Statue of Liberty. Give me your hungry, you're tired, you're poor. I bought into that America. Um, and that is my privilege, right? I, I, I get to say, yeah, look at, the, look at America, this great land of opportunity where, you know, now in doing a lot of work and unlearning, some of those biases that I, in the way that I see the world, we've talked about, you mentioned Black AF on Netflix, 13th on Netflix, um, just understanding uh, the prison system and where it comes from. Something I never really asked about. I never, I didn't, I wasn't taught about, I wasn't curious about jail. That was a place that I was told to avoid at all costs. Um, a place for criminals, you know, a place where, um, you know, you go if you're bad. And I think um, learning about the systemic problems and like the reason that the prison system exists and the, the changing of slavery. And you mentioned like uh, the resilience of black people and the resilience of people of color and immigrants. Every chance we got as America, we changed slavery into something a little bit 
less scary sounding or a little bit more approachable, whether it's prisons or law and order or, um, you know, stop and frisk and these other inherently racist ideas that are disguised as good legislation for this land of opportunity. Or on drugs. Yeah. Or on drugs. I, mean, I, think, I think it's a way that we have another way that we have fooled ourselves, right? And I think, Rob, to your point, all of us at some point, to some level, at one point in time, have have seen or have fallen to the this is the land of opportunity or, or the pick yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. But I think some of us have just been in situations where we have learned that, well, what do you do if you don't have the boot? <laughs> and many yeah. of us don't have the boot. That is a, a very ableist and racist uh thought that, that many of us have fallen to. And uh, the other part of this is even the conversation that we have around um, maybe changing the, the topic a, a little bit, but it was brought up about racism in and of itself, right? When we're having a conversation with someone, something that I, I have had to really force myself to stop doing is asking, is a person racist, right? Um, because when you do that, you give them a clear opt to say, no, I'm not racist. But when we start thinking about in what ways do you contribute to a racist system, it, it creates a completely different scenario. If we look at presidents, right, this is something that that's, I think is an easy way to, to get this point across. If you look at US presidents and you ask the question, who is a racist versus who contributed to racist systems, you'll, you'll get a completely different view of presidents, right? Lyndon B. Johnson was well known for using the N-word uh, as it relates to Black people in his own circles. Lyndon B. Johnson also passed or got through Congress the Civil Rights Act of 1968, right? So he was personally a racist, systemically he was not, right? That completes a difference. Bill Clinton, the person who many of us claim to be the first Black president, went around playing his saxophone and doing smooth jazz on live shows um, and pretending to be the black people's president uh, while also incarcerating us in mass, right? Not, not racist as a person, but systemically racist. And that is a huge difference in how we view that topic. There are a lot of people out here who are not racist as a person, but are contributing to the system of racism in ways that they're not willing to confront, at least right now, not not right now in this moment. And that's, that's the shocking part to this. Um, the fact that we've been asking the wrong question for so long and out of the wrong context. And it, it really goes to this, this case of, I don't know if you've ever heard the term, but me and my partner have been speaking about it lately. There's this term called hermeneutical injustice, right? So there are different types of injustice. Hermeneutical injustice applies to when you are experiencing something, but you don't know how to bring to words what you're experiencing, right? So uh, a, a key point of this is uh, recently, we just came up with the term microaggressions, right? And I think if you've read uh, or uh, if you've heard Ibrahim uh, Kendi, I believe, uh, speak, you would hear him say, it's not really microaggressions, it's just aggression. Um, but we've come up with this term microaggression right and but before microaggressions existed we were saying the same things we just didn't have a term to apply to it so we were in a, a, a hermeneutical injustice as it relates to 
the things that we go through on a day-to-day -day basis in our workplaces, in our lives, we didn't have a, a, a word to use it. The same applies to many of us in the diabetes, going back to the diabetes community. We were all experiencing these things. We were all not seeing other people that look like us. We were all uh, getting um, shunted on the healthcare front. We were all not receiving the same advice from uh, our endocrinologists, or if we even had an endocrinologist, uh, we all didn't get access to uh, uh, dietitians and CDEs, but we didn't know how to bring that to life. Um, and that's the, the another piece of this racism talk is we were experiencing this injustice, trying to vocalize it, but didn't have the words to vocalize it. Um, and that, that brings us back to where we are today. Um, we finally have a few more words in our arsenal. It was mentioned um, earlier um, that Black people overcame it literally being illegal for us to read. We still see that taking place in academia, academia today. If you want to check out a podcast on that, check out uh, Black and Intellectualist, Intellectualish. They talk about it a lot, trying to navigate the academic space as a Black person, Black and Brown person, and why we failed to get tenure uh, at rates way higher than our white counterparts in academia. Um, and, and it's largely because we've been experiencing all of these things against us and we haven't had the terms to, to bring to light what we were actually experiencing, right? I knew I wasn't seeing other black people who were diabetics, but was that because there were no other black people who were diabetics? I didn't know that, right? Um, and so it was, it was an injustice uh, uh, on the part of the diabetes community and on the part of just me not even being able to have the access to know uh, further into that situation. Um, okay, well, that was a super mic drop moment from Cameron. Um, we wanna kind of shift the conversation just a little bit, but still going into the, still the same theme that we've got uh, a bias in the medical community, just in general towards people of color, black people specifically. Um, it's 2020 and Caltex isn't always important. so. Earlier this year, we lost Chef Tommy Fields from complications of COVID-19. Uh, he was a person in the Black and Brown community and the type 1 diabetes community who was disproportionately affected by this. You know, he passed away, unfortunately, we lost him. So I think it's important for us to talk a little bit more as we dig into so many people that we've lost, not just from police brutality, but also medical racism and COVID-19 to talk about how like the media treats the death of black people. Are we desensitized to it? Is it something that for lack of a better term literally happens every day and on our headlines? Oh, yeah. What do you guys think? Something that- when I you definitely see don't media, think- Go ahead. I definitely don't think we're desensitized to it. And, and perhaps I'm a little closer to this issue than, than uh, most, but my partner actually did her uh, dissertation on researching the, the viewing of uh, killings of black people dying or going through traumatic situations on black people. Uh, and what uh, she realized is uh, that we, uh, we tend to internal, we, we take it to heart. Um, really, it affects our mental and, and uh, physical health. It, it has a, a physiological and psychological impact on us in viewing these things. So whether we bring that to words or not, that's a different case. But it, we're, we're definitely not desensitized to it. And I think 
most of us, whether we know it or not, also have experienced some form of medical racism, right? Um, I, I've told my story several times and, and don't mind sharing it again here, but as a kid being diagnosed with T1D, my first endocrinologist was a, a white woman uh, endocrinologist who also has T1D. Uh, my parents in speaking with, um, with uh, other pa uh, parents in the waiting room soon learned that she had been uh, prescribing insulin pumps and insulin pins to all of her white patients while all of her black and brown patients were still using uh, old, uh, old school syringes, right? Um, and none of this new tech, even though we had asked for an insulin pump for me. And it took on, uh, us switching care teams completely uh, out of her care to even get insulin pump therapy almost two years later after the fact, right? And um, that's much to the credit of my parents for advocating to me and being able, being in a situation where they could advocate to me, but we know that most people of color are not in those situations, right? To me, it was of no surprise to learn that black people were dying at much higher rates of COVID than anyone else. Um, you barely hear our stories. A, a close family friend of mine um, was in the hospital for over six months with COVID. Uh, he got it um, earlier in the year while he, they were celebrating his uh, father's birthday. Uh, his father got it first, his mother then contracted it, his sister contracted it, and then he contracted it. The, two, the mother and the sister recovered in about a week's time. The father passed. He went into a, a, a coma induced by COVID. His brain was not getting enough oxygen. Uh, he awoke from his coma in November to learn that his father did not make it. Um, and these are things that are happening in the Black community. And it, it, to me, it triggers this, this argument that, that I've had in several circles. Um, I, I talk sometimes about the, the difference between patriotism and nationalism. Uh, and I often get asked in those circles, what's the difference between the two? Because if you look them up in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, if you look them up on dictionary.com, if you look them up uh, just about in any dictionary, you'll find somewhat similar um, uh, uh, definitions, but you'll also see that nationalism often gets um, pegged with the, the term chauvinism. Um, and I think what we've seen in the midst of the pandemic is really the, a clear definition, finally a clear definition of what patriotism versus chauvin, uh, versus nationalism um, means, right? Those of us who are truly patriots didn't mind putting on our masks because we knew that the mask was not for my own protection, but it was the protection of my fellow citizen. Those of us who subscribe more to nationalism fought wearing a mask because they view it as the rights of the country, the rights of the land that we, the freedoms that we have are more important um, for me personally than those around me. Well, when we do that, who is most likely to be at risk? Well, we know that black people in black communities, um, and this is going to sort of bring in a little bit of my career. I work in the nonprofit field, so I know a bit about how black people view community we tend to care a lot more for our fellow person as black people. Uh, and so of course, 
you saw all of us go out uh, and we all uh, were trying to get masks and we were putting on masks uh, and that's it's a part of our, our nature and our upbringing, right? To care for your neighbor because no one else is caring for us. Um, and so when everyone else was not wearing masks, um, it affected us. And then it got into the, the medical system, right? And when it got in the medical system, of course, no one was mentioning that it was affecting us. And why is that? Well, Morehouse School of Medicine later revealed that we were displaying different symptoms than the typical person with COVID. So we were displaying completely different symptoms, getting no national news uh, and dying from this disease at large numbers. And so we get to this point today, and even as diabetics, we're having to make this case. And I think this is some, one of the places where we can find a lot of common ground. You see a lot of us pushing people, wear your mask, wear your mask. You're saving my life, wear your mask, um, because we're also at risk. Um, but to me, we knew, I, I, I predicted that black people and people of color would be dying at, at higher risk of this um, because we don't get the same treatment in hospitals. Um, I've experienced it myself and it is something that we've always known would be the case. It's crazy at the beginning, people actually thought black people couldn't get COVID. Do y'all remember that? Mm -hmm. Like at the beginning, it was literally it was literally trending on Twitter, and it was like, oh, none of us going to die, just white people. White people can't get COVID. And then, like Cameron said, those articles came out that were like, oh no, actually, we're just we have different symptoms, and we are impacted differently. So that's why it's not being talked about. Um, so yeah. Um, but remember when COVID like, couldn't survive the heat? God. God. Um, but I want, I want to talk a little bit more about Tommy Fields because I know that's really important to Rob. So did anybody here know him or know of him within the community? Well, I remember Kiana came on my, we did the live show over the summer and sang a song in his honor. And that was the first time I think broadly I got introduced to really a, a lot of people here, um, which, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for obviously, but like, I think it, it, in times of tragedy, it really speaks to what you said, Cameron, about, the black and brown communities being closer together and wanting to come and celebrate uh, any kind of small celebration of life of someone close to them. Um, and I, I just remember going back and like watching that live, like seeing the comments and the people who were there, most of which I didn't know who were celebrating this person who I only bear, I barely really interacted with. I just had a very basic social media interaction relationship with of somebody who's a peer in a field. Um, but it, I, it shook me because I just remember like, okay, this, this guy lived a very similar life to what we all live, like sharing content on the internet, uh, doing something he was passionate about, helping people, giving back. And then to see how quickly that turned made it, me feel like it was important to, to highlight that. Because again, like you said, Cameron, not surprising because of the lack of access, the lack of care, the standards of medical care being uh, less accessible for people of color. So of course it wouldn't surprise me that more people would be disproportionately affected by COVID. But anyway, I remember Kiana, I remember you singing a song uh, in his honor on that episode and just being kind of blown away by the, the support of the community at large. Yes. Um, something you just said stuck out to me where um, you mentioned how uh, black and brown communities come together to either celebrate. Um, and, and, and we do that 
often. And it's not just because um, it's not just because we we knew Chef Tommy. I did not know Chef Tommy. Um, it's almost similar to when there is a celebrity such as Kobe Bryant who passed away tragically, and then everyone feels like there's a piece. Um, they might not know that person, but there's something inside of you that was just inspired by that person. Um, people in black and brown communities, we're like that with one another. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. It doesn't have to be a superstar. Um, we, we hear of other people's tragedies and we will be impacted in different ways because we see each other in one another all the time. Um, so when I, I was moved to do something for Tommy just to, in his honor, because I had never, to be honest, I'd never shared not even one thread. I went into my messages, but this was someone that I followed and I appreciated his voice in the community. He just kind of lit up and I saw what he was trying to do in his local community, which was similar to what I was trying to do in my little place where I live. And um, it resonated with me. And being that it was just such a time where it, there was a lot of fear everywhere and a lot of, you know, we're still like myth debunking when it comes to COVID. But to see it, it felt like it, to see him pass away or to know of his passing due to COVID, it felt very real for me what was going on, even though I didn't know him because I, um, you know, because he looked like me, because he was a part of my inner community. And um, I was moved to just do something for him, which was, um, I, I look at this as like a God wink, because I wanted to sing something. And for some reason, my phone, I couldn't get the recording right. And so then I think I just played a song and just found pictures of him and that's what I posted. And I had my friend to actually play an acoustic version of, um, of um, a voice to men song. And that's what I used. Mm -hmm. And then when you reached out to me and, and said you wanted to do something in honor of Chef Tommy, I said, wow, see, he was supposed to get a sending home. And that's what people in black and brown communities do. It's like, we're gonna send you home. We're gonna celebrate you. We're not, you know, we were all impacted and we, we were sad, but at the same time, we were like, what can we do together um, to make sure that his, his life is recognized and his contribution in this uh, diabetes community that we're all a part of is, is um, you know, is recognized and known. It's beautiful. I have always thought that it's so beautiful in the black community when funerals happen. It, it is always a home going. It's never a, hey, yeah. get together. We're going to be sad. It's a home going. There's going to be some chicken. Like, come through. There's going to be some chicken. <laughs> There's going to be some chicken. Come through. Sorry. My favorite, I think, quote about funerals is they're not for the dead. They're for the living, baby. Come in, come through, have a good time and leave with a full plate because there's going to be food there for sure. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. But that's how we all come together. And that's why um it seemed like during this this whole um it's like a revol it's a revolution it's an awakening there's so many things that are going on right now um that are causing everyone to feel things that are bubbling up and you have to talk about it um i think it's really important that 
we continue um, collectively. And it's not just black and brown anymore. It's like, we're all in this together and we need yeah. to start um, um, really recognizing that whatever happens to you is still um, going to be something that impacts me. Um, and because we're all in this world together, we should have a sense of, of, um, of responsibility of helping one another. Um, we're, we're used, I'm used to it. I'm used to looking to the left and to the right of me um, to help wherever I can. And I think this, this really challenging time has really challenged all of us and, and made us kind of just like raised bar, like, hey, we need to do better. We need to do better um, as people. We need to do better as the human race at the end of the day. Um, so let's uncover all of the things that are ugly and yucky and mucky. And, um, and I, I have to tell you, I'm really a non-confrontational person I am that person that's like, can you, I don't want to have that combo. <laughs> um, I try to say things, you know, as kindly as I can. If not, I'll say it without saying it by not maybe involving myself in certain things because that's not my strong suit. Um, I'm, I'm definitely a person who tries to be, tries to keep the peace. But at the same time, in trying to get to peace, you do have to have a little, little rumble it's got a little shake in there and that's why I appreciate people who have much bigger voices than I do <laughs> who can get in there um but you know I always stand with uh people who are all about you know equality and um calling someone out holding them accountable when they're doing something wrong um in in any which way so I never don't ever stay shut always say something um, and that's just, that's been my stance on everything that's been going on. There was, um, JDRF thing that happened. Oh, I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but I was, I was, um, someone did reach out to me from JDRF. I forgot what chapter it was. And because I get caught in the mom in, in momdom, that's what I'm going to call it. I get caught in momdom. I receive, I catch my messages a little late because I'm not constantly attached to the phone and I saw that I was a bit late on my reply and I'm like oh sure you can um you can post me I'll send you a picture but it was it was too late by then and then the next day um you know I started to see all of the backlash from what um what was supposed to be a positive thing and um you know I was kind of singing that uh that Beyonce song where you're just like you 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 met you happy you you missed that bullet. <laughs> the best thing I never had, girl. Best thing I never had. <laughs> you know, I think that's so funny that you say that. I uh, I want I want to touch on something that you said about how as people of color and black people we do tend to come together, and that when shit hits the fan in the diabetes online community we do tend to just like all come together and be like, all right, so what we're not going to do is this. Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about a specific instance that Cameron was a part of and that we all were a part of, but uh, a project that came out earlier this year was Beyond Type 1's Get Insulin Project, uh, which was, you know, lambasted in the community. A lot of 
before we get to Karen's post, um, sorry, I think my speaker just went out. Sorry, guys. Can y'all still hear me? Yeah, you oh. actually sound better, uh, interestingly enough. <laughs> so um, I want to talk about this a little bit too, because I think I want to I want to put a disclaimer up here. I think criticism <laughs> by membership of diabetes organizations or organizations in general is appropriate. Okay, um, I can hear you guys now. Sorry, I don't know anything that happened. Um, but yeah, so there was a lot of criticism happening on Twitter by a lot of people that I don't want to say are for part of the insulin for all movement, but just the typical people, just the people who are always complaining on Twitter that were really calling out beyond type one for this platform. They were upset that people had even created it, that people spent time on it. Um, and then there was a specific post that Cameron posted all on his own that really made my entire life so much better. Um, so, and I don't know if you remember that post Cameron, do you know what I'm talking about? I think I do. Um... It was, so fire. So um, essentially, I think what Cameron said, well, here, I'm going to wait for you to pull it up because I can't even sum it up well. Like it was such a read without a read, like such a drag without the dragging. It was just beautiful. Well, and while Cameron's pulling that up, I'll, I'll say it again. And Eritrea, you were off audio when I said this. I think it's appropriate for members of an organization to criticize when they feel like the organization is not representing them appropriately. And I, think, I, and I think that's fair, but I think that sometimes people who are used to things being built for them and catered to them and created for just them in mind, when they don't get exactly what they asked for in the exact way they asked for it, will criticize anything and everything. And just because you don't need the resources, I mean, somebody else doesn't, which was really... Right. And, and as Cameron pulls up his post. I think one of the things that has been said a couple times on this chat already is the unifying factors of community and looking to the left and to the right and saying, hey, this uh, this could help someone who needs it. And you know, there the, some of the criticisms of this program um, are not as relevant to people who don't who aren't on Instagram or who aren't uh, you know, deeply involved in the diabetes online community, whether blogs or Twitter or Facebook groups or what have you. And I think the post that you're referencing, it looks like Cameron's ready to, he's got it pulled up, uh, I think speaks to that issue at large. Do the Birdman hands, Cameron. Do the Birdman hands. Knock <laughs> this heat on me. <laughs> so the post uh, says, does anyone find it funny? that a resource was made available to diabetic people who don't have the luxury of excess time and the response from those who do have the luxury and privilege of time was to bash the resource and harass Nick Jonas. While uh, getinsulin.org does not solve all of the problems of access to insulin, it will help a lot of people find much needed resources. Uh, and then I think the, the last part of it was let's channel all of the energy for bashing and digital bullying into uh, contacting our state and federal legislators and make a real change in insurance and pharmaceutical companies so that everyone can have free and affordable access to insulin. And that was the, the key point to me. And I think that's a, a key point as to how people of color were seeing this and why we all banded together for this. Do we understand that they partnered with pharmaceutical companies for it, yes. Do we understand what that means? Yes. But what we also saw was the single mother who either has a diabetic child or is diabetic, 
who maybe not doesn't have insurance and is having to navigate uh, these programs and trying to find um, insulin uh, for their kid or for themselves. We saw the caregiver of a diabetic who is already overwhelmed with having to manage uh, their own disease, the disease of someone else, uh, let alone trying to find them insulin. We saw it on ourselves. I have experience in, in moving from uh, state to state and having to go off uh, and having to uh, pay for insurance out of pocket uh, while trying to afford insulin and having to benefit from one of these programs. And it took the, the amount of time it took to Google and to find a reputable source and to, to, re to, to utilize it was was overwhelming. And then some of us even saw um, a, a particular person that I think we all know um, who will put us all in check if we need to be. Uh, but she also saw the ableism in this. Someone who may be ADHD and doesn't have time to sit down and to navigate trying to search uh, Google for hours or someone who perhaps has cerebral palsy and can't manage to sit at a computer uh, for hours on end to search. So to see this resource all come out, no matter how it was funded to us was, this is a small win, this is a win. And for me, it's a big win. And um, instead of bashing these um, nonprofits, these pharmaceutical um, companies, which, to, and to be honest, they're, they're just a small piece of this puzzle. They're not the whole thing, right? If we really wanna talk about access to insulin, then we have to bring this to the global stage, right? When there are countries who are getting free insulin while we're paying $400, well, of course we're gonna pay 400. They're not earning a profit in several other major economies in, in, the, in the world. And so where they're gonna make that, extra, that, that coin, right? They're gonna to come to us. So if we, wanna, if we really wanna have that conversation, let's bring it to the world stage and have that conversation. But for now, um, when this resource got unveiled, to me at least, I, I won't claim to speak for the entire black community, but for, for me, it was a, a small win to people who definitely needed it and who could utilize this source right then and there. I agree. All of, us not, all of us are nodding. We're just like, yes, Cameron, <laughs> drop bombs on those people. Uh, were you talking about, um, just to shout her out because she deserves it, Taylor Beddick's post? Yes. My girl Taylor, Taylor Beddick. Big snaps Taylor Beddick Taylor. is always putting us all in check um, with ableism, <laughs> racism, colorism. Nothing but respect for my president. That's my homie, bro. That's yeah. She should run. I will vote if, for her. If she does run, I, I, I will be the first person to vote for her. I'm getting in line. <laughs> for sure she yeah, also yeah. is is built on this uh under this program very excited to have her on board so she's just a part of another conversation so um we're going to be picking the brain of the of of the genius uh on this in this Great. exact format so uh just make sure i'm just making sure i did my homework so i don't get called out on anything um speaking of what do people like me so people like me like rob Powell, people in positions of leadership in diabetes need to know about what it's black, like to be black with diabetes and what needs to be done on an individual level to help black people with diabetes and people of color with diabetes uh, and stop what we're seeing, some of the erasure, some of the denial, some of the exclusion from the diabetes online world, medical care, medical racism, et cetera. Feel free, I mean, I'm here, so I'm not- I'm gonna let you guys go first. <laughs> I think it's I think it's usually using your privilege, you know what I mean, to help us in these spaces. 
right? It's, it's different if I say, well, this insulin company only shows people, uh, only shows white people in their brochures and I can't relate to it, but yet they're still profiting off of me. You know what I mean? It's different when it comes from another, uh, another, per another white person saying, hey, you know what I mean? Maybe we need to go ahead and get some more diversity in here, which is a, a, a coin term that's thrown around, right? When you need some people of color. But it, it, you know, you have to use your privilege in the same way that, you know, white people have uh, helped black people in the past with social injustices and different things. You know what I mean? We need you guys to uh, use your privilege to assist us in that manner. Um, I think that's a, a good starting point. There's a bunch of other ones, but I know everybody has a laundry list of, uh, of answers for this. So, Well, I, I love what... First of all, that, I love that. Uh, thank you for that answer. But I love what Cameron said earlier about allies and accomplices. And it occurred to me that being an ally is sort of just like table stakes. And if you really want to help, you've got to put in the work. And I think, you know, a thing that I operate, an ism that I operate by is like, what you do is who you are. You can say lip service is easy. You gotta, what are you actually doing? What are you actually producing? Uh, no excuse, just produce. And I think that accomplice line really like resonated and was very sticky for me of like, oh, like what is an accomplice? Someone who is helping you do something. Um, and oftentimes is like not in the spotlight. It's just like behind the scenes making stuff happen, um, which I felt like should be, you know, was very tangible for me, at least in this context and in this discussion. I mean, allies and accomplices are, are definitely the two. I'm sorry, go ahead, Kiana. Oh, no, I'm just basically second that emotion. Um, and I'm, I feel like I'm the storyteller. I'm like full of stories. Honestly, I, I have so many stories. But I'm going to tell another story. So <laughs> I feel like um, it's as simple as if you're having a party, invite me. Just invite me. And if you don't seem to have that many people of you know color who are your friends, um, you know, start to kind of, you know, I think this whole, this whole change and what's, what it's inspired many people, many people who are white to do is look up what it means to be black, why black people feel the way that they do. And now we're starting to get some invites to some things that are going on that no one ever even thought about us because you've been conditioned. I mean, like there's been centuries of like, this is how it's been. I don't know that I have to think about, I, I don't know that I'm doing anything wrong. I don't, I don't see it. Um, and so now that we're talking about it, I mean, it's as simple as, as I, I made it that simple as like, you're having a party, just invite me. But um, I have a story to share with regard to just my personal um, journey with dealing with my diabetes and then actually actively looking for other people who were type one and then realizing that all of them were white. And I'm like, where are there, where are people who look like me? This is weird. Is this not a thing? Am I different? Um, and so then I found Ariel, Just a Little Sugar was the first one I found. Um, and then I continued to find other people on her page. I was like, this is amazing. We're out here. Um, but why is it that I, it's not, it's, it, I, there's, it feels like there's less of us and I feel like there's some more research there that needs to be done. 
shout out to type 1D registry for that. Um, <laughs> but there's definitely some research, but uh, within the community, um, as I was researching and looking for other people who look just like me and just to connect, connect with anyone on, you know, how to um, support one another in, in with your diabetes management. I ended up becoming friends with someone online. Um, Sarah McLeod is her name. And I met her because we ended up at the same eating disorders conference. And on that night, she said to me, hey, you know, I know you're, you're working on some things locally and where you live, but I'm getting together with like a mastermind group of people who, you know, they all just wanna help in this space too. And I'm gonna invite you. And I'm like, okay, I don't know anyone here. Um, was a little bit nervous. Um, and to be honest, I thought to myself, am I gonna be the only black person here? I did think that, um, which is like, I don't, I don't know, I don't know that white people feel that way as much because I don't think they go into too many rooms where it's a bunch of black people. They're like, am I gonna be the only black <laughs> white person here? Uh, but that was a thought of mine. And I was like, okay, just, you know, shake it off. Um, Arielle was supposed to be there. I heard that she was invited, but she didn't go. And I ended up making friends with some really influential people in this space and learning so much, actually um, gaining opportunities that I wouldn't have otherwise had if Sarah did not invite me. So that's why I said it's as simple as inclusion, include me, include us. Um, our voices matter because everyone's voices, everyone's voice matters, everyone's perspective, unique perspective. Um, whether you're black, brown, it, it doesn't matter. You have a, a perspective that needs to be heard because it's gonna take all of us raising our voices to make the change that we need to make in this diabetes community so that all of us have access to the tools that we need to manage our diabetes for us to be able to come together and have um, legislators change laws, it's gonna take all of us. And so you can't just have one um, demographic raising their voice, it isn't mm -hmm. enough. But, you, but if you gather all of us, there's gonna, we're gonna make the impact that we need. And I feel that it'll happen much quicker and much faster. And to go a bit off topic here as well, I think that's kind of why um, George Floyd, you know, kind of uh, raised the awareness so much, right? Because it wasn't just America that was protesting for him and the police injustices and different things. The world saw that. The world heard that gun, you know what I mean? They, they, we witnessed that, the world witnessed that. And I think partially that was also due to COVID. So if nothing else good came from this, which it doesn't look like it has, um, at least it gave the world a moment to stop and pause and, and you know, uh, kind of center our eyes on what was going on in the police injustices that were happening in the states. You know what I mean? And that, I mean, it, it had, you, you, everyone witnessed the effect that it had. You know what I mean? You had people protesting overseas and different things and it just, it really made a big difference. So to Kiana's point, she's right. We all will need to unify and we will all need to lift our voices, so to speak, um, not just one demographic. I, I think for me, um, or, or going back to what I was 
uh, to what Rob said uh, about accomplices and and allies, I think if we look at the point of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, we get to Blackout Tuesday, that showed us a, a clear representation of the differences between allies and accomplices, right? Allies put that little black square up on their profile, put BLM in their um, names on the diabetes, or not even, even the diabetes, but in the online community as at large. Um, but then how many of those actually went out and supported a black business? How many of those went out and uh, actually conversed with their black friend or, with, or made a black friend? How many actually um, conversed with us and not just included us, but actually in, invited us to the table to sit down, to, to speak on the same playing field as our white counterparts? Um, inclusion is great, but as the, the uh, well, I, most of us on this chat are, are light-skinned, but as the light-skinned guy, I have been the included. I have been the guy in the picture uh, for the brochure, for the video. Um, and that's all well and good um, if, for, for that purpose, but where is my voice at the table? Um, and it, it's, uh, I, I keep bringing up quotes and, and things, but I think um, Langston Hughes, um, poem, I Too Am America, says it best, right? He says, uh, right now I eat in the kitchen, but while I'm, and I'm not invited at the table, but while I'm eating in this kitchen, I'm laughing, I'm eating well, and I'm growing strong because tomorrow I will be at the table and no one will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Um, and that's what we need. We need to be at the table. And I think, Rob, back to your question, what can those in leadership in this diabetes community do? I think they already know what to do. <laughs> um, and I think that the bigger point is to stop asking us and looking towards us to dismantle the house that they built. Um, we didn't have the tools to build the house and we don't have the tools to tear it down. Um, and so the, the real point of it is uh, they know what to do. They know that majority of these boards are majority white. Um, why don't you include on your board of trustees and on your board of directors and on your leadership team uh, and on your uh, high level, C-level executives, more people of color? Um, why don't you include us uh, on your panel discussions? For those who are not in the leadership but are accepting the talking positions, have you rejected a talking um, uh, engagement because there were no other people of color to speak on this or to speak on these topics? Um, and, and those are the real of it. Start uh, putting action to, to um, action to the words and show that uh, you do want to be an accomplice, that you do see that there is a disparity and that uh, we need not just to be included, not just to be invited, but to actually be, be heard and to be listened to and to be valued. And the, the funny part is in many of the, these spaces, um, I think, we see this most clearly in like the, the education space, right? Um, when we look at grades, what K through 12, we there's a clear correlation that shows that having more black faculty and not just faculty, but staff members, secretaries, uh, um, having more black lunch ladies, having more um, black uh, uh, custodial staff, right? all prove that uh, students have a more, a higher success rate in graduating and a higher success rate in going to college. Not just black kids now, all kids, right? The same is true 
for uh, just about every other instance. And once you start including our voice and actually listening to us, performance rate spikes. <laughs> um, and and that's, that's the real of it. We are here, we are against all odds, well-educated. I would say as much as you fight for black people, fight twice as hard for three times as hard for black women. Right now they're the highest educated group in the country uh, at, the, at the highest growing rate. Um, so clearly they have something to, to put forward towards the table make that argument, make that case, um, and really listen to us as we, as we in these settings are saying how we feel, but then don't, expect, don't also expect us to dismantle a system that we did not build um, because we didn't have the tools to build it and we don't have the tools to tear it down. And I think that speaks to what you said earlier about the bootstraps comment and bootstraps culture of um, you know, putting that responsibility on the oppressed party rather than uh, working with them to, you know, make it, make, bring them to the table for, or bring the table to them, so to speak. Um, exactly. To, to answer the question that Rob asked and to kind of not piggyback on your comments, but also to just 100% agree with every single one of you, because there wasn't anything that you said that I just, just, it all resonated with me. Um, something Kiana said really like really stuck in my head. So you said that when you went to that party, it was uh, something inside of you was like, am I the only black person here? It's because it's scary for us to be in spaces that are all white. We die sometimes when we're in spaces that are all white. Like, I don't think that people understand this, not this, but the severity of being black in America, but like how much our life is literally on a string, like any situation to the wrong direction could lead to the losing of our life, whether it's driving while black, going to a party while black, being the only black person somewhere. So there's so much that goes into that. Um, and just to answer the question of as far as what can white, powerful white people or people who are in better positions or have a spot at the table is something Kiana also said, look to your right and look to your left. And if everybody in that room is white, something is wrong. And if you don't say something about it, then you're part of what's wrong because white silence is violence. Your complicity to the structure allows for it to continue. So I think that it really is going to take people and not to put the spotlight on Rob, but I am going to fully shine it on this man right now. People like Rob who are willing to look at themselves in the mirror and say, okay, I have 150 episodes of my podcast and only 13 of those episodes are black people. Why? Why did I do that? Why, what can I do to change it? And if that means hiring a black girl who's going to bring more black people on, who's gonna bring in more perspectives of people of color, you know, at the end of the day, any business, if anything, all you can do is do better. Because if you include the people of the planet who are your customers, like honestly. So it seems really basic, but a lot of people aren't willing to do it. And I've seen in recently in the space so many other brands, and I'm not going to say specifics, but so many other brands who have tried to be inclusive and tried to have conversations or tried to start a nonprofit, and they don't talk to any Black people. And if they do, it's one Black person, the same Black person. But it's always the consumable Black girl, the Black girl who looks like me, the Black girl who looks like Kiana, the light-skinned guy. And it's like, where are the rest of us? You know, there's we are 50 different shades of black. There's so many different ones of us who look different, who have different hair, different faces, different everything. So don't just include us to include us, actually get out of the way, give us the microphone 
And when it comes to criticizing black people, be quiet, be silent. And I know that's hard for white people to do. So that's why I say it. And I try to, to challenge white folks into that is like, if you, if I bring up your race and that bothers you, why does that bother you? So, so that's really what I would say is for people who are in positions of leadership and white people who do occupy these spaces is to really look at themselves, really hold up a mirror to yourself and, and really ask yourself about why you feel the way you feel about black issues. And I also just say this, this, is, this has been placed on my heart real quick, I, I swear. Um, and you know, the, the other thing is just, when you're asking black people what can we do? I think Cameron kind of touched on this, but I think it goes without saying as well, do the research. You know what I mean? Think about all of the, think about your, excuse me, your history class growing up and how you learned about all these prolific white figures and what they did and what they accomplished and Alexander the Great and Abraham Lincoln and this and that. We didn't learn about black figures. You know how we learned about black figures? We did the research yeah. ourselves. We went looking for like Cameron said, Langston Hughes. We of course you learned about Martin Luther King, but there's so many other prolific figures. You know what I mean? And I think that goes without saying within the black, um, within the diabetic community as well. Don't ask a person of color, well, how can I help? You know what I mean? We do the research, you know? Do the research. Stop asking us that question because people are tired of answering it. Not to say that some people won't answer that, but the same way that we had to learn, you can learn as well. I think we that asked also for this so podcast. Rude. It was it was one of the questions we posed on this podcast because I think we know, and I think Rob knows that the majority of our listeners are white. So we really wanted to, if there is a way for us to help people press the easy button on information, like here it is, listen to this episode, listen to this panel, listen to this series, you know? Um, because the excuse of information is not accessible to me isn't really relevant anymore when you're walking around the world with a $2,000 device in your pocket. It's not just for Twitter, it's not just for Instagram. Like you can Google things. Reading I think though, fundamental. Yeah, I think what Mike said was spot on and I have to piggyback on that. Like because we didn't learn those things. We had what February was every year where we learned about maybe three black people um, in school. And so we didn't learn those things just overnight. We had to, to, we did the research on our own to start formulating our own opinions. And then what we learned was one, what we already knew, we're not a monolith. So going back to the look to your left and look to the right, one is never going to be enough because we're all different shades, we're all different life um, uh, upbringings. Some of us are coming from wealth, uh, that more wealth than others. Some of us are coming from different learned experiences. And then we, we also learned that we all have different, slightly different views, right? Uh, I, I took a year, I think it was last year, yeah, last year, and I only read books by people of color. That was the first time I had ever done that. It was the, it was so eye-opening to read. And what I learned was we had been saying the same thing for over 300 years. When I read Frederick Douglass, when I read W.E.B. Du Bois, when I read um, James Baldwin, when I read Langston Hughes, when I read uh, all the way up to I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness, um, which was just published, what, four years ago, two, four years ago, I think. Uh, we've been saying the same thing since the beginning and nothing has changed. Um, and so I think that that's the point, too. Do, like, like Mike said, do the research. 
look into it, read some books, take, take time and dedicate it to just reading and listening and consuming content by black people, um, by people of color. Um, particularly by indigenous people too. I, I, I'm, I'm starting yes. to get more into that too because uh, and this is my own personal belief. I just, I believe that they are uh, perhaps the most marginalized group in America um, to the point where we, we just don't even uh, cover them. Uh, and it's, it's a shame. So start thinking about that and do that research because we had to. We didn't just come up with these opinions overnight right? We, we knew that there were lived experiences, um, but we did the research. 100% agree. And I think, you know, like Eritrea said, here, we maybe know these things, but for the people listening, these are actionable, very clear next steps that you can take in your own life. I think step one is look to the left and look to the right. Be more aware of the rooms that you're in um, and ask yourself that question. Like, is, are, is everyone represented here? Uh, are the right people represented here? Um, and I think that'll, I mean, for me, just, just, the, just the awareness, like that filter from three or four years ago has a, just created a whole new lens by which to see rooms that I go in. Um, and especially, you know, this is obviously tied towards diabetes. This pod, the, the only reason we're all together for the most part um, is because diabetes links us and it's important to look at that entire holistic experience. Um, and you know, I, I want to make sure that we are not contributing to the erasure of, of the black experience within diabetes. And now all that to say, like we're, I have not done everything right. And I, uh, to date, and I will for sure make mistakes going forward. But I think where I'm comfortable is that those are going to be mistakes of commission, not omission. And I'm going to be taking steps to, to do that. I think, uh, Mike, your comment really resonates with me in like corporate America. I, I see a lot of big businesses in Dallas hiring, uh, chief diversity and inclusion officers, uh, but not hiring black people. So it's like they're, I mean, they're hiring black people for that position. Uh, and absolutely go get the, go get the bag for sure. Go get that bag. But, um, they're not doing the work down below. And I, and I, I see it in my own business where uh, as a small company, we don't have a recruiter, we don't have HR, we don't pay for, uh, for applicants. And so a lot of our uh, applicants and candidates are from our own networks. And so we're having to change the way that we hire people because we're not getting enough eyeballs to get diverse people. And I think that's where you know, change is very difficult. Uh, it takes more resources it takes a change in behavior. It takes a shift, but that shift is necessary. And I think if we are going to take steps in the right direction, you got to be willing to go do something you've never done. I think that's a, you know, a sports thing. I'm, I'm a Cameron, you don't know this about me, but I love quotes. So you've been like, man, I'm like subscribed to the, to the church of Cameron because you got quotes <laughs> and, uh, and references. And I think one is like, if you want something you've never had, you got to do something you've never done. And that's where, you know, this for me, this is, this is that creatively for me is like something I've never done uh, to get something that, uh, that we've never had. So thank you guys all for being here today and for being a part of it. Um, I'm indebted to you guys and thank you for, for sharing, giving of your time and sharing your stories uh, for our, our listeners. I'm so grateful you guys. Oh, also you take what, what is it? You miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. Michael Scott, Wayne Gretzky.
There you go. That's right. <laughs> but yeah, no, I'm super grateful to you guys for being here. This conversation has been on my heart for a long time. Cameron, you were everything that I thought you were going to be in more, my friend. I dream of you. Michael, this was amazing. Kiana, better late than never, my life can sis. And I'm just really grateful you guys made it and made this conversation everything that was. I, I can't wait for people to hear it because I think that we really, there's so many diamonds here, like so many gems. So thank you all. Um, well, thank you for having me on. Um, you know, I'm... I've had the opportunity to, to be able to speak a bit more um, at different conferences and share my views. And um, I'm also now kind of passing the baton and you know, being able to um, be a part of this conversation is a part of that. It's like, um, you know, it, it, it feels like it's, it's, it's a good turning of the page. It's like, okay, next. It's a part of closing that 2020. So we can start 2021 on the good foot. <laughs> Why do I want like a James Brown song to come on now? <laughs> Ow, I feel good. Okay. <laughs> I pass it to Mike. Oh, well, I was waiting for Cameron. Um, no, I just want to say, um, Rob, I hope you didn't take any of this personal. Um, I actually do want to like thank you for for you know what I mean you and Aratria for putting this together um, and kind of giving us a platform to to speak and highlight these different things. <clears throat> um, and as I stated before, I hope that you didn't take this personal because you are um, you were not who I was referring to when I was saying my comments uh, because you are putting you're highlighting it, right? You're asking the questions that need to be asked. You're letting the people speak that need to, you know what I mean? Our voices are not heard. So thank you for just giving us this platform. Um, and uh, I look forward to working with each and every one of you very shortly. And I, I echo those sentiments. I wanna say thank you to both you, Rob, and uh, you, Eritrea, for allowing us on this platform today to speak and to speak passionately and freely about something that is uh, close to us and uh, that we all live, that is a part of our lived experience. And uh, also about the part about, uh, for you, Rob, not taking it uh, personal. Um, I think something my partner has uh, stressed to me over the last week is we have to, uh, she's been reading um, how to be uh, an anti-racist. Uh, and one of the concepts in that book is uh, we just as we expect white people not to uh, uh, talk about us collectively, we also have to not talk about them collectively. Uh, and so uh, that that same sentiment applies here. And so uh, breaking down that construct of, of speaking collectively about everyone while also uh, stating our point for a system that has been oppressive to us in more ways than one in our personal lives, our professional lives, and in this case, our medical lives. Uh, and so thank you for that opportunity. Well, I appreciate you guys. And, and I appreciate you saying that. Uh, I certainly do not take it personally. And, um, you know, I think it's really just a testament to the amazing black men and women who have been a part of my life. Uh, and I was, you know, thankful. I'm thankful. My, it's lucky that I have had this experience, frankly. Uh, my life experience is very different uh, than people from my ethnic and socioeconomic background. Um, 
And, you know, I remember walking up to my almost all white for the first time. My first time I had a basketball team that was predominantly white was my college team. And I walked up on us in the first team meeting. I was like, man, we suck. And because I had never been on a team with more than one white person that was any good. And uh, so my, and my homies and my, my like friends roasted me for trying to fit in and for making, you know, I had this velour jumpsuit that I for sure wore that was like not the right thing to wear. Um, and I stumbled around trying to figure out where I fit in at age 14, but without my friends and the leaders and powerful black men and women in my life, uh, I would not be where I am today. And I think that experience I'm so grateful for because it, um, I don't know. It makes me, it makes me look around and say, Oh, well, why, why are there only white people in here? Um, and why, how can we change that? Because that's, I don't know. I'm just, I'm very, very fortunate. The roll of the dice decisions my parents made uh, to put us in a place that was not homogenous um, has paid dividends for me uh, in a hundred different ways. So yeah, I appreciate you guys. He never takes it personal. I drag him so much. Like, and he's not even whack. Like he's so cool. But I just, I don't know. <laughs> no, you are. You're such a cool guy. But no, he never takes it personal. So I don't even think that he thought really we were talking about him. But thanks for always being a good sport, Rob, and amplifying voices that need to be amplified. Hey, I wouldn't do it if it wasn't like the most important thing that I could do with my uh, access that I have. So, uh, hey, you know, one of these days, we're going to look back on all of these accomplices uh, and all of these leaders like you guys and say, you know, today is better because of the work that they did. So I want to be on the right side of history uh, with you guys. So um, that goes without saying. Thank you for listening to More Than a Diabetic on Diabetics Doing Things. We are going to continue this four-part series all the way through January 2021. You can find all of the content that we posted about More Than a Diabetic on diabeticsdoingthings.com slash more than a diabetic with dashes in between each word. So more dash than dash a dash diabetic. And on Instagram, you can use hashtag more than a diabetic and see all of the little micro content that we're putting out there, all of the individual show graphics and all of the Instagram handles of our amazing guests. So keep it locked for more, more than a diabetic here on Diabetics Doing Things.